Welcome, everybody. We are glad that you are here. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of um, the pastors here, and we spend some time every Sunday reflecting on a portion of God's Word, the Scriptures. We've been going through the book of 1 John, and we have hit a a small but important insertion into the main argument of 1 John concerning assurance. And you will find the verses up, I think, in a moment on the screen, and we will now have them read for us. This morning's reading comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And in the world, and, and the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. I was preparing to move to Toronto to replant this church, and the church that was sending us asked me to speak about it, and I did. Uh, Lord of the Rings movies were uh, popular at the time. The last one had just come out, and so I decided to make people laugh or try because they were asking questions because they were from the southern part of the United States. They thought Toronto was such a spiritually hard place. What was it going to be like? And so I quoted Gimli. Certainty of death, small chance of success, what are we waiting for? I thought everyone would laugh, and most did. After the meeting, however, the senior pastor asked for a meeting in his office. He asked me why I had used that quote. I said, are we not allowed to use a movie quote in this church? And he looked at me, and he cocked his head, as he does when he's wise, and he said, you know that's not the issue. The issue is, you made yourself look like some kind of heroic Rambo, some heroic figure. That's the real issue. It's not the quote. It's you. We're hoping to have you plant a church that glorifies God and isn't about you. We've now come to the first command in the letter John writes to the churches. The command is simple and it is stark. If you are curious about Christianity, these words just read reinforce your belief that Christians somehow hate the world or are supposed to hate the world, and actually you're right. We are. If you're a Christian, these verses remind you immediately that you don't hate the world or at least not the way you are supposed to, not nearly enough. And God hates that about you. And you too are right. Because here is the real issue. Is it about God or is it about you? So let me read them again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides 
forever. Why did John insert this into a sustained argument meant to assure these churches that they knew God despite the disturbance of the people who had left them? Why? I think you know why. I do too. Because at the end of the day, when all of the crises of the day have been swept away, when the fog of conflict and division has cleared, John knows that for his people there will remain one serious adversary, a perpetual enemy, a constant temptation, a real issue that all of his people and all of us people have in our spiritual life. You know it, and I know it, and it is here. It is the love of the world. That, I think, is John's point. That is why he inserts this here for them then. And he wants us to read now, because it is now one of our great obstacles. You see, John has already asked them the threefold test. Firstly, do you believe in Jesus, that he's come down in human flesh, God sent to die for us? Yes, check. Do you strive and struggle to obey God? Yes, check. Do you love one another? Yes, check. Good. Those are real issues right now that have been raised by the current crisis. But let me stop and remind you of a real issue, of something that isn't the current crisis, but when the fog of that crisis lifts, it will still be waiting for you because it always is. It is a real issue, men and women, that will, if we let it, derail our faith. It tempts all of us, even when we don't realize it. It tempts all of us all the time, for all the time that we shall live on this earth in this age, which is passing away. So let me read it again, shall I? Do not love the world or the things in the world. John says here that loving the world in the manner that he defines it is seductive, easy, popular, and very often successful. It is also spiritually stupid, dangerous, toxic, self-corrupting, fatal, God-dishonoring, and just wrong. John here says the love of the world should not be what characterizes you if you are a Christian because that love is poisonous, that love is pervasive, that love is passé. It is poisonous, pervasive, and passé. Poisonous. John says because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Better wording, you don't love the Father if you love the world the way I'm talking about. So what is he talking about? He's not talking about the physical world that we experience and enjoy in a beautiful way. He's not talking about the beauty of Algonquin Park when the leaves are turning, the beauty of Kenmore, Alberta, or Emerald Lake in the beauty of summer. John has a particular meaning when he says the world here. It's the world that sets itself up institutionally, personally, and in every way, autonomously from God and does not want the rule of God. God so loved the world, says John 3.16, but the world's, this world so hates Jesus. 
Listen to Jesus himself in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John's quoting Jesus there. John is repeating Jesus' sentiments here. The world here is a world that sets itself up and against God. Love here means an admiring desire to follow that world in its autonomy from God. It's the misguided belief that the world will satisfy you. The world here is probably most honestly expressed by Thomas Nagel, award-winning professor of law and philosophy at New York University. Nagel said, I am talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience because I'm strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. This is the world that John is saying we are not to love, the world that doesn't want there to be a God. Because to love this world is to love a world that consciously has turned its back, intellectually, ethically, and in every way, upon the love of God, the beauty of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God, the loving wisdom of God. It is a world without God himself. This world wants a world without God. This world wants to run the world without God. This world wants to run itself. It wants to be God. And if you love this world, it means you admire its values more than God's. You admire and strive for its pleasures more than the pleasures of knowing God. You get your sense of life satisfaction from this world. It feeds your soul. It feeds you. It guides you. It brings your appreciation and it elicits your imitation and emulation. You begin to reflect it back to the world. If that is true of you, then I beg of you, have the intellectual courage and moral honesty to say it as clearly as Professor Nagel did. I don't really want God in the world. He makes me too accountable. He makes my ethical choices too rigorous. He makes them too weighty. He shines the light on my real motives for doing things. He shines light on the selfish reasons I even do good things. So John says it as plain as day. If you love the world this way, the love of God is not in you really in any way. The love of the world has no room in it for God because it is anti-God. It is poison. Secondly, it is pervasive. John continues, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, they're not from the Father, but from the world. John is delineating three ways that the world invades us, inhabits us, shapes us, and slowly poisons us spiritually. 
And what I think John is saying is this. These are not the only three ways. These are three trajectories that give you a sense of the pervasiveness of it. He mentions first the desires of the flesh. John is saying here what most people think he means by the world. John says we have physical pleasure desires. The Greek word here for desires literally translated means over desire. It could mean lusting. It means there are some things in the world that in the right situation and in the right measure, they're not bad for us. Bodily pleasures, good food, a glass of wine, sexual intimacy in the right context, ordered rightly are beautiful things. But we struggle with lusting after them, over desiring too much of them when they are not meant to be ours to always enjoy. One of my idols is cultural sophistication. So I was tempted not to talk about this, but I need to. In our culture, as we have gotten more secular, it is no surprise we've become more interested in sensual pleasures. This follows what John expects. Not just sexual pleasures, all of them. But our society now has elevated drinking well, living well, eating well, having sex as much as we possibly can. Because the society thinks all we have is this life, and therefore we need to squeeze all we can out of this life. It is no surprise that in this context, the porn industry has an estimated $97 billion per year in revenues, more than the music industry and the film industry combined, apparently. About 35% of all internet downloads are pornography. 25% of all internet searches are for that product. 70% of North American men aged 18 to 24 visit porn sites at least once a month, 20% of all e-commerce sales are pornography related. Men and women, we need to grasp this. Pornography is vile, evil, sexual exploitation of people for the wanton, lonely, gross pleasure of the person watching. The prevalence of pornography and of this sexually exploitive media that destroys minds, warps brains, distorts human sexuality, and rips marriages apart is massive. It is deeply embedded in our culture, and it is inside our church. It's not the only desire of the flesh, either. There are all kinds of others. Eating addictions, struggles with alcohol and substance abuse. We are probably quietly, because most of the chatter in social media is about our ethical stands against racism, sexism, homophobism, etc. We're fooling ourselves into thinking we're a very righteous generation. We are quietly the most hedonistic generation probably of all time. But John broadens our understanding what it means to be in love with this world because he doesn't just talk about like the sex stuff. Now he talks about the stuff stuff. He says, the coveting of our eyes, the desire, the epithumia, the over-desire for things. Nobody knows what your weird, warped mind desires in the deep recesses of your brain. I will tell you, for reasons that completely escape me, a Giorgio Armani suit with nice pinstripes, for some reason, has been part of my daydreams for decades. I don't know why. 
it ain't all that. But for some reason, I just have nourished a quiet, secret desire and many other things much worse that I'm not quite ready to tell you. These things haunt our minds, slip into our daydreams all the time. It's not wrong. Our money, pinstripe suits are nice. It's not wrong to want to take a vacation to some warm place in the wintertime. It's not wrong to appreciate a good glass of wine, nice clothes, nice cars, but to covet them, to want them like Gollum wants the ring is the issue. And we do that. Thirdly, the pride of life. Uh, the word life here is translated the material life that we have, not the spiritual life. It probably means the pride one has in what one has acquired and in what one has achieved. It's your status. Your stuff, your status, your sex, these things are what we align ourselves with. You see, now we begin to see how pervasive this love with the world is. Your resume is important to you. You may not want to admit it, but it is. Your accomplishments, your choices, they're important things for you. You see, being in love with the world is not reduced to being sexually permissive, coveting nice things, or being proud of your latest promotion. It's much deeper than sex, stuff, and status. John mentions here examples of a whole way of thinking. I submit to you that a fiercely anti-establishment, vegan, environmental activist under this definition is just as worldly as the 500K a year investment banker on Bay Street. They dress very differently. One seems to be in our culture much more righteous than the other. But the question you need to ask yourself are these three. Who am I listening to to get my values? Are your views on justice derived from what God has said in his word or what our media has told us is social justice? You may have pretty good control of your sex drive. You may have pretty good control of your stuff. You may have status that seems fairly on the outside, but you may still be listening to what the culture has told you to derive what is good. Is the culture not only what you're listening to, but what you're speaking to in your conduct and your words and your values? Who are you wanting to hear when you make your statements against racism or homophobism? I remember watching a video of a black man in a southern hostile white cultural context speaking out against racism. That was brave passion for God's standard. And I have seen time after time virtue signaling Caucasians up here say almost exactly the same words to an approving audience of fellow like-minded anti-racists, and they are not the same thing. They aren't. One is trying to build a reputation. One is risking their life for God's justice. Are you trying to speak to and for God? Or to and for your culture? Finally, if you're listening to and speaking to the culture, is it not the case that it is the applause of the culture and not God that you are ultimately seeking? When I was in undergrad, 
there was a strong progressive movement at McGill, and a bunch of us were on the peripheries of it. We were um, uh, trying to do well and, and get into grad school, so we didn't have time for all of the activism. But I remember one time we were um, sitting there, and then um, a woman came in, and she was a, an activist leader. She was from a wealthy New Hampshire family. McGill has many of those. She came, and she said, put her jacket down. She said, okay, I've got to go get something, just saving my seat, and she left. So I looked over at her jacket. I said to my friend, I said, nice jacket. He looked at the jacket. He was right behind it, and he just pulled it over and said, oh, L.L. Bean. Ah, L.L. Bean. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but in my day, L.L. Bean was right up there with Ralph Polo, Ralph Lauren Polo, as the clothing of choice for the upper-middle-class New England preppies. She had just outed herself. It was worth, we checked online, it was worth almost $300, $800 today. So she came back. We had our class. She smiled and as she put her coat on, the guy beside me said, nice coat. She said, oh, thanks, and walked away. And then she turned because she knew her reputation as an anti-establishment, pro-environmentalist, vegetarian, had just taken a hit because she had an upper-middle-class L.L. Bean jacket. She turned back and she said, it was thrifted. <laughs> and it's not just progressives who build their resumes. It's conservatives who virtue signal. It is pastors. I was listening or reading about Tim Keller once. He was talking about how he researches all the time to understand the culture so he can speak back to it. And he has all these quotes from the culture so that people can understand he understands them while he shares the gospel. And he said with a note of regret, so many times I come up with pastors, and you know what they want from me? They want my quotes. And when I heard that, I said, I want his quotes. I've listened to his quotes, researched where he got them, bought the book so I can honestly say I wasn't stealing from him, but I was. Why was I doing that? Partly because I wanted to engage you. Partly because I wanted to look culturally sophisticated. Pastors sometimes are afraid to confront you on your sin because they want to look to you loving and caring. Other pastors want to be ready to confront you on your sin because they want others to see them as bold and courageous. They're both worldly. They're not speaking to God. They're not speaking for God. They're not looking for the applause of God. They're looking for you to love them, care for them, or respect them. Men and women, it doesn't matter how wealthy or non-wealthy you are, how sexually active or abstinent you are, how much stuff you have or don't have. Loving the world means you are listening to it, speaking to it, seeking its applause as you build your sense of what is good and beautiful and true on what it tells you. Karen Jobes put it really well. The three evils John lists here are not to be narrowed down to the specific vices. 
Pastors love to preach about all of things, especially the sexual stuff. While all of that is true, they're only symptoms of the much deeper problem of the world's alienation from God. People who reject the knowledge that God is light reject God's sovereign prerogative to define the standard of human values and morality. Even if you're not an atheist at the philosophical level, anyone who rejects God's rule of life in some aspect of their behavior is to that extent an atheist in practice. The underlying problem is a radical autonomy of the human spirit that insists on being its own God. That's me. I think it's you. Worldliness is pervasive. It slips in all the time. You trying to be the perfect mother? Feeling overwhelmed by the articles and podcasts telling you how to parent your child? We just talked about that yesterday. Many of us are. Are we listening too much to the world? Are we trying to be the model professional and advance our career so the world will listen to us? Are we trying to be the cool student who hangs out with the cool kids so we get the applause of the world? It is poisonous, it is pervasive, and finally, it is passe. It is passing away. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The gospel is saying this world with this kind of desire to be independent of God, this is going away. And the world is coming that God has planned for his people, that he is preparing and bringing to his people a beauty, pure and simple, beautiful in every way possible. It will be the glory of nature with no death. It will be the glory of humans with no pride, lust, selfishness, evil, and cruelty. And John is saying this, which world are you investing in? Where do you put your hopes and your dreams? Where are you investing your energy and your life? In a world that is presently dark, presently tiring, even exhausting, presently distorted and corrupted by lust, coveting, and pride, or in a world that is coming and is eternal and is perfectly beautiful. God is coming back. He will wind up this last age of history. He will judge all those who have ever lived, and he will judge them for what they have lived for. If you've lived for what this world can give you, independent of God, you will not have eternal life. If you have lived in this world for the next world because you put your trust in Jesus who loved the world in a different way, then you will receive the love of God for all eternity. Because the love you have for God and for Jesus is what defines who will be with God for all eternity. And the love that you have for this world can be transformed to the same love for the world that Jesus had. Because Jesus did not listen to the world. He not, did not get his applause from the world. But his heart broke with love for the brokenness of the world. And he left his perfect world and came into our messed up, mixed up, jumbled up piece of junk of a world. And he loved it in its darkness and independence. And in his broken heart, he lived a beautiful, perfect, sinless life.
And with a broken heart of love, he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, and he died. A broken, bleeding, transforming love of compassion for the darkness of the world. Not a grasping, applauding, taking desire to use the world to make it about us. He died for the world which is passing away to bring in the world that will not pass away and to give you entrance to that home. Where are you investing? Some of us invest. We're learning. The Internet has told us how to do it. How many of us are investing in coal technologies? Almost none of us. Coal technology is almost extinct. How many of us are investing in new DVD companies? Hopefully none of us, because it has passed away. But where are we investing our hopes, our dreams, and our energies? This world is like the DVD technology. It is passing away. It's a really stupid investment. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. A couple of quick applications. Admit your worldliness. If you're like me, it's all over you. It's in you. Admit it. Confess it. Admit that you follow the world and how you think about life and how you gain your values far too much. Admit that you speak to the world for it to notice with your actions and your words far too much. Admit that you're hoping for the applause of the world with your energies, your hopes, your career choices, and lots of other things far too much. Confess. Ask. Ask for a renewed spirit of love for God from God, and the Spirit of God will answer your prayer. The Spirit of God wants to install in you a sense of being loved because the Spirit of God wants you to love out of a place of feeling loved. In Romans chapter 8, it says this, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as children by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ of the world that is to come and is eternal. The Spirit of God wants to install in you a sense of being loved, and he wants to elicit in you a response of reciprocal love. Confess, ask, and then meditate. Easter's coming. Meditate upon Jesus from now till Easter. Pick a gospel. I suggest John or Luke. And ask the Spirit of God to enlarge the Son of God in the heart of you the child of God, and act in faith. Spend time glorying in Jesus. Meditate upon his greatness, his love, and his joy. Take 40 days. Confess. 
ask, meditate. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, help us not to love the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Time for one question? Um, how do we strike the right balance? Uh, how do we live in the world but not often? How do you strike the right balance? Cam. Confess, ask, meditate. It's all I got for you. I don't know how to strike the right balance. Okay, first of all, why are you doing this? First of all, <laughs> Okay, God, is there a point to this, the searchlight? Okay, I'll put it on you. <laughs> Deflect it. Um, I seriously, if you're in the Word, the balance comes to you because the Spirit of God uses the Word to tell you. And when you're in the Word, constantly you become sensitive to the Spirit using the Word to tell you. So the weird thing is that the old disciplines really refresh these issues. Um, ambition isn't necessarily wrong. We've talked about it. You have to find the balance, and only the Spirit of the Lord can give you that balance. I can't. And the Spirit of God wants to give you that balance, so let Him talk to you. Talk to Him. Listen to Him, and He will guide you. I'm going to uh, ask the worship team to come on up and ask for us to prepare our hearts to respond to this message. So take a moment now. Bow your heads. And take about 20 seconds and ask God to speak to you.